Well, um, if you have a copy of the scriptures, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And we're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 26. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter, but uh, I want to read just a part of it. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 19 through 29. And so uh, let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand again in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Acts 26. We're in Luke, uh, the beloved physician, faithfully records. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. And then looking ahead to verse 19, we continue. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. May God bless today, once again, the reading and the hearing of his word. And let us go before him again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do seek today thy light, the light of the Spirit's illumination. So open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our minds and hearts to receive thy word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we are continuing this Lord's Day, uh, this follow-up to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, which has led us into looking at some various scenes. We're not doing an exhaustive exposition, but to look at some various scenes from the book of Acts. And that's fitting because we looked at the life and ministry of Christ in Matthew, and now the book of Acts tells us what happened after Christ was risen from the dead and he ascended after appearing for 40 days to his disciples and how was the gospel spread through the apostles and I've noted I think probably each time as we've been in this short series through Acts 
that Acts 1.8 is thought by many to provide an outline for the, the, this book. As the risen Christ says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And when you look through the book of Acts, what happens? Acts 2, Paul, uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem. And there are 3,000 souls added to the church. And then uh, Acts 6 and Acts 7, Stephen dies as a martyr. And because of that, uh, the, the, the followers of Christ in Jerusalem are spread and Philip goes in Acts chapter 8 to Samaria, and he's a witness for Christ there. And we saw also after he had brought the gospel to Samaria, the Spirit directed him to meet with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we saw last time how the man who had been persecuting the church, Saul, was converted on the road to Damascus, and then he becomes a preacher of the gospel, and he takes the gospel, we saw last time in Acts 17, to Athens. Uh, that city of ancient philosophy and paganism, where they, they never met a god they wouldn't worship. They even had a, a, an idol to an unknown god. And Paul had preached the gospel there to the uttermost part of the earth. And, and today we jump a little bit further along uh, into this account to Acts 26, to Paul giving another kind of message before a very different audience. And, and in order to help us understand this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of background teaching. Jason's going to be a bit of a longer introduction. Hang with me here so that we will be able to understand the setting that is laid out for us uh, here in Acts 26. Now, Paul undertook three missionary journeys. And we saw that one of those missionary journeys was there in Acts 17 when he was in Athens. But at the end of that, his third missionary journey, uh, he went back to his home base, which was the church in Antioch, and then he went down to Jerusalem. And that's described for us in Acts chapter 21. And while Paul was in Jerusalem, he went to the temple, not because as a Christian he was engaging in the sacrifices that were in the temple, but Paul went there uh, because he wanted to rub shoulders with his fellow Jews and share with them about Christ. But while he was there uh, in the temple, there were some people who had seen his ministry uh, throughout basically the, 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 the places like, like Athens and like Corinth and Ephesus, the places where he had gone. He'd gone into the synagogues. He had preached Christ. They recognized him. And he had with him a Gentile convert, a man named Trophimus. And they accused Paul of having brought this Gentile into the temple. It was a false accusation, but they brought it nonetheless. And basically, uh, something like a riot had broken out. And it's recorded for us there, if you look back for just a second, in Acts 21, uh, and you look at verse uh, 27... Uh, it, it says they saw him at the end of that verse in the temple. They stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Verse 28 of chapter 21, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. And then Luke explains, verse 29, for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Verse 30, and all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. In other words, it was a lynch mob basically that was going to take Paul's life. And so his life was in jeopardy but in the providence of God, because God had more usefulness for Paul, he had the Roman soldiers intervene. They saw this disturbance. They came out of their barracks and they drove the crowd away and they took Paul to 
the place that's called here in the scriptures their castle or their barracks. And Luke even tells us, if you look at Luke 21, 35, that they had to literally carry Paul over the top of the people because they were trying to tear at him and, and grab at him because of the violence of the people. They had to carry Paul over their heads to get him away from the crowd and into this, this castle, this protected area. And, and Acts 21 then is, is a turning point in the inspired account of Acts because before this time, Paul had had freedom. He was traveling and preaching. But from this point on to the very end of the book of Acts, Paul is going to be a prisoner. He's going to be the imprisoned apostle. And he's going to be giving defenses of the faith. Whereas he had been openly preaching, he will continue preaching, but much of what he will say will be about defending the faith. And so Paul becomes not only a preacher of the gospel, but also a defender or an apologist for the faith. It's a biblical term. We continue to use it. An apologist is someone who defends the faith. Not apologist like you bump into someone and say, I'm sorry. But it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a defense. Defending the rationality of the faith, the rightness of the faith, sometimes the peacefulness of the faith. And so Paul was doing that because he and the other Christians were being accused of causing sedition, of of, 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 of fighting against Judaism, fighting against the Old Testament, etc. And so he's defending the Christian faith. And Luke records for us a series of messages that he gives to various audiences. The very first one comes right after he's arrested in the temple. And if you look in chapter 21 and verse 40, you see that he began to speak in the Hebrew tongue to the very people who were trying to kill him. And notice, if you look at uh, chapter 22 and verse 1, he speaks to them. He's standing on the stairs of the castle, uh, the Roman barracks. And he says in chapter 22, verse 1, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I make now unto you. Behind the English word defense is that word apologia. Hear my defense defense my apology and so again it it starts right there and uh, as he's making this defense uh, before them do they listen to him Uh, no they will not listen but it's interesting if you read that uh, that chapter chapter 22 you'll see that one of the things Paul does is he rehearses he repeats the account of how he was converted on the road to Damascus Luke had told it sort of in the third person in Acts 9. Paul sort of tells it again in the first person in Acts 22. And how does the crowd respond? Look at chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. Again, remember, this is all the background, helping us understand what's happening in chapter 26. We'll get to it, Jason. Uh, hang, hang in there. Um, so <laughs> he, when he does this, what do they do? They say in, in chapter 22, verse 22, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes, they threw dust into the air. It's a dust up. We want to have nothing to do with this man. And so they wanted to kill him. And the Roman soldiers at that point, they didn't know who Paul was. They said, well, we'll just scourge him. We'll just whip him nearly to death. And Paul said, "Uh, uh, before you do that, let me just tell you something. I'm a Roman citizen. They didn't know that. They said, wait a second, you're a Roman citizen? He says, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. That meant that he had to be treated under Roman law, and so they couldn't just scourge him as they had intended to do. And so they decide that they'll bring him before the Jewish council or the Jewish Sanhedrin the very next day. And if you look at Acts chapter 23, that has the account of Paul going before the Jewish Sanhedrin. The council. And he looks around, he sees that some of the people there are Sadducees, that is, they come from the priestly sect that didn't believe in the resurrection. And he sees that some of the people there are Pharisees who believe in the resurrection. And so he declares to them 
in uh, verse 6 of Acts 23, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, am I called into question? And he knew this would divide the house. And this sends them even into a greater fury. In fact, Paul, uh, or Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 10, that again, the soldiers had to intervene for fear that they would pull Paul into pieces. And in fact, Luke also tells us that at that point, some 40 Jews, more than 40 Jews, took a vow not to eat or drink until Paul was killed. This is a violent opposition to the gospel. It's one of the most interesting accounts given there in chapter 23. Paul had a little nephew. And his nephew was sent to him. And his nephew told Paul about the plot of the 40 Jews who planned to take his life. And Paul sent this boy to the Romans. And he told. And that very night, the Romans sent Paul under guard out of Jerusalem to a place called Caesarea where the Roman governor was seated and and so he uh, arrives there in Caesarea the Roman governor is a man named Felix and this takes us then over into chapter 24 and uh, a, a, a contingency of Jews come to Caesarea the seat of the Roman governor among them is a man named Tertullus who is described in verse 1 of Acts 24 as an orator or a, a, a rhetor, a, a good speaker, a lawyer. And he begins to bring charges against Paul. And he calls Paul in the midst of this. If you look at verse 5 of Acts 24, he says, This fellow is a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the, of the Nazarenes. And so he's bringing accusations against Paul. And uh, thankfully the Roman governor had been around the block probably a few times in dealing with these types of disputes with the Jews. And so he decides, no, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep Paul here in Caesarea. And we're even told that this Roman governor, Felix, had a Jewish wife named Drusilla. And he called Paul later to speak with him and Drusilla uh, concerning the faith in Christ. That's what it says in Acts 24, verse 24. But this Roman governor also had an ulterior motive. Unfortunately, like many places in the world at that time and many places still in the world at this time, there's a lot of bribery that went on. And one reason that he called to, to, to talk with Paul was not only to hear about what does faith in Christ mean? But also he thought he might get a kickback. His palms might be greased. Look at Acts 24, verse 26. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul that he might loose him. Paul wouldn't do that. Instead, he preached him a sermon. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. That's what the apostle said to the lame man. In the temple, that's what essentially Paul says. And notice what Paul chooses to preach to this man who holds his, his destiny, his life in his hands. What does he say to him? Look at verse 25 of Acts 24. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Paul preached a hellfire and brimstone sermon about the righteousness of God. And we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As he had it at, at Athens, remember when he said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by the man that he has proven by raising him from the dead. And, and what did this Roman governor, what does this Roman governor do? Look at verse 25. I think we're supposed to laugh at this. Felix trembled. Paul was a prisoner. He was supposed to be trembling. But it's the Roman governor who trembles before the preaching of judgment, the judgment of God, the righteousness of God in Christ. Well, um, the Romans were often changing governors. You know, Pontius Pilate had been the governor under whom Christ had been crucified. 
then Felix had been the governor, and then he was replaced uh, by a man named Porcius Festus. Look at verse 27. Paul stayed in prison in Caesarea for two years, but after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room or place or stead as governor, and Felix, unwilling, or willing rather, to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. So now we've got a new governor. His name is Felix, and this is, we're in chapter 25. We're getting closer to chapter 26. Hang with me. This is the introduction. We will get there. We will look at our passage. Two years, he's there, and uh, Felix or, gives way to Festus, and Festus says, I'm going to keep this guy Paul. I'm going I'm to try to figure out what's going on. And if you look at chapter 25, you'll see the Jews sent another delegation, and they said, we think you should send Paul back to Jerusalem. That's where he ought to be tried. And we're told of another plot. They plan to assassinate Paul. Thankfully, Festus was wise enough to know that something didn't seem right. And he goes to Paul. And if you look at chapter 25, verses 9 and following, Paul says to, or Festus says to Paul, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judge of these things before me? And Paul knew the plot against him. And he answers verse 10. Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may, deli may uh, deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. And Paul had that right as a Roman citizen. Any Roman citizen could say, I want my case to be heard by the emperor in Rome. And so Paul made this providential decision, probably saved his life, to go and to stand before Caesar. And once this decision had been made, Festus um, says in verse 12, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. But he's holding on to him for a few days. Before he sends him off, the Jewish king, the Jewish puppet king, whose name was Agrippa, and his sister, whose name was Bernice, they came to Caesarea to greet the new Roman governor. And while Festus had Agrippa there, and while he had Bernice there, he decided that he would have another audience with Paul so that he could know better what he should write to the imperial authorities about this man, Paul. This Agrippa, by the way, was Herod Agrippa. He was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, the one who had been ruling as a puppet Jewish king when Christ had been born in Bethlehem, the one who had massacred the innocents. And this is his great-grandson. The apple, unfortunately, didn't fall far from the tree. He was a wicked man, and his sister wasn't much either. Um, but they were at least had some contact with the religion of the Jews, and so... Festus thought they would be able to help understand. And this sets us up now. This is, we're, we're at, finally at chapter 26. We're almost at the end of the introduction. Hang with me. This sets us up for Paul giving basically this last prison speech before he's going to be shipped off to Rome. And this one is a little bit different. You know, in, in Acts 2... When Peter stood up to preach in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit fell down, the audience were Jews. They were diaspora Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And not only Greek-speaking, but they spoke many languages from all the nations of the earth. And that was part of the miracle. The Holy Spirit gave the, the apostles utterance to speak to them. But they had some background. They were, they were, they were religious Jews. In Acts chapter 8, um, the Samaritans knew something of the Old Testament. The Ethiopian eunuch, we, we said, was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who had been drawn to the religion of the people of Israel. 
And in all those cases we've looked at before, and even in, even in Athens in Acts 17, where did Paul begin his ministry there? He went into the synagogue. But in all those places, there were people who were interested in the gospel. And in fact, there were people who were converted. 3,000 people at Pentecost in Jerusalem. We narrowed in in Acts 8 on the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8.37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he was baptized. Acts 17, even in pagan Rome, remember how that, it ended last time? Two converts were mentioned. Dionysius, the Areopagite, a man, and Damaris, a woman. And remember how, how it ended at the very end, Acts 17, verse 34, and others with them. I mentioned this last week. It's encouraging. It's encouraging to the church when we see people come to the faith, right? We often say this when we have uh, baptismal services. We say, you know, these people, one of the things they're doing is they're, they're providing one of their first ministries as Christians. Because they're, they're, they're encouraging us in the faith. You know, when we preach the gospel... Lord's Day after Lord's Day, week after week, and year after year, it's encouraging us to see people come to the faith. Right? It's very encouraging. But in this situation, Paul is going to be preaching the gospel and to these religious, to these elites, rather, these political elites. And <laughs> Agrippa's going to say, you almost, you almost got me, Paul. You almost got me, but you didn't. Paul's going to be appealing to all most persuaded hearers. One of the key messages that comes through this text is a reminder of the proper stance of believers within Christ's church as we bring forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus and we bring it forth even with the message is not fully understood and even when it is not fully accepted by almost persuaded hearers. Finally, we're getting there now. Jason, we're at that point. We're going to look at Acts 26. I, I, told him, I told him back there earlier, I'm picking on him because I said it's a long introduction today. Uh, but now let's get to the text. We're there, Okay. So let's walk through this passage, and, and we're, gonna, we're not going to look at it as deeply as we would in some other expositions, but we're going to walk through the passage, and believe it or not, don't, don't get too concerned, but I'm going to break it down under seven headings. Okay, so it begins in verses 1 through 3, the first heading, Paul, notice, focuses his words especially on the Jewish king Agrippa. Paul's, he knows Agrippa has some contact with the Old Testament, some contact with the religion of the people of Israel. Here's something that's interesting. Notice how it starts off in verse 1. Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Foolish Agrippa, he thinks he's in charge. I'm going to let Paul speak to me. But it's actually the Lord who is in charge. He's going to allow Agrippa to hear from his apostle. He's going to allow Agrippa to hear some witness to the, the gospel. And again, as we, we noted before, what do we see as the pattern in Acts? It's always a man standing up to speak about Christ. It was Peter in Acts 2, preaching to thousands. It was Philip in Acts 8, preaching to one person. Did the number, did, does the size of the audience matter to the Christian preacher? Not at all. He should preach with just as much passion to thousands as to one. In Athens, it was Paul standing on the Areopagus, speaking to pagans. And again... It's one man standing forth to speak about Christ, and there's something being told 
told us here about what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 1, that, uh, that God is pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And this is why preaching is always the first work of the church. Um, no matter how inadequate the preachers are, no matter how much we stammer, we still have men standing forward to speak about Christ. In our church history series on Wednesday, we were studying the, the, the century before the Protestant Reformation started in the 1400s, and we were noting that at that time, God in his providence was having various men pop up, whether it was um, Wycliffe in England, whether it was uh, uh, John Hus in Bohemia, or the, what is today the Czech Republic, whether it was uh, uh, Gruta in Holland. And we, I said at that time, I noted this on Wednesday, that, that there wasn't much preaching. Can you imagine? We sort of take for, for granted there are these evangelical churches, there are these steeples, there's going to be preaching of the gospel. But in the 1400s, it was very little preaching. And when someone appeared who could, who could open the scriptures and preach, they drew crowds and they drew controversy. A lot of those people met their death, like Jan Hus was, was burned at the stake. But anyways, here's a man standing forward to speak. And You'll notice in verse 1 of Acts 26, it says, Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. You might be interested to know that behind the English word answered there is uh, the, the Greek verb apologeo, related to the, the noun apologia. He, he, he answers, he begins to give a defense. Again, that's his posture. He's preaching, but he's also defending the faith, which is under fire. We think about what the Apostle Peter will write in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer, an apologia, to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Paul proceeds to say that he's happy to have this opportunity. Verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Verse 3, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. So he says, good, I'm glad, Agrippa, you, you know something about the religion of the people of Israel. You know something about the God of the Bible. And I ha I'm happy that I have this opportunity to speak to you. I'm struck also by just, and nothing here is by accident, right? But notice the last line of verse 3. Paul, the prisoner, says to Agrippa, Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Perhaps we preachers should begin every sermon with these words. I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Put away your watch. Get the grocery list out of your mind. I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Good preaching requires good preaching. You know what else it requires? Good hearing. Good hearing. See, it's not just me getting up here preaching or any other preacher who might go behind the pulpit. It's, it's hearers. It requires good hearing. And then second of these seven headings, Paul makes reference to his own previous religious background. So Paul starts off with a little testimonial of how God has worked in his life and he talks about talks about how, what it, his life had been like before he had come to, to faith in Christ. And this was likely, as he puts it, something of common knowledge among the Jews. They knew of his previous excessive piety. Look at verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, known, no, rather, all the Jews, which knew from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And so he starts off by talking about the fact that you know, he had been a Pharisee. Again, he, previously we, we heard he was a son of a Pharisee. 
This reminds us of what Paul wrote in the book of Philippians when he was battling with Judaizing teachers, teachers who were most likely Jewish Christians were saying, in order to be a Christian, you need to continue to keep the law, circumcision, and other things. And in Philippians 3, verses 4 and following, Paul had responded then, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. If there's any zealous Jew who thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have even more, Paul says. And then he gives sort of his resume of his spiritual activity. This is Philippians 3, 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And then he says in Philippians 3, 7, but what things were gained to me those I counted loss for Christ. All my resume, my curriculum vitae in Judaism, I count as loss for Christ. Um, he also, if you look at verses, uh, going back to Acts 26, verses 6 through 8, as he had done before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he says, I'm the reason I'm being charged today is because I believe in the resurrection. Because I believe in the resurrection of Christ. See, the Pharisees believe there's going to be a resurrection at the end of history. Paul said, I still believe in that. I just believe that God has given the first fruits of it by raising Christ from the dead who died on the cross for our sins. And so he says in verse 6, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers and he says in verse 8 why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead if you're a Pharisee you believe in the resurrection of the dead the only thing I'm saying is that God has raised Christ from the dead Paul's testimony here in this second heading is a reminder that God can use our previous religious experiences even if they were not the best or the most accurate. And sometimes I've met Christians who grew up Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, they, they said, then I, then I heard the gospel. But they say, you know, there were some things, even as a Jehovah's Witness, that God used for me to learn. Or I've heard Mormons say this, or converted, or Jews. Or people who were raised in dysfunctional Christian environments where they even heard and experienced heretical things and hurtful things. Can you look back and say what men meant for evil, God meant for good in my life? Paul did. Are you going to walk around with a chip on your shoulder your whole life about it? Third heading, verses 9 to 11. Paul describes his previous hatred of the gospel and his hatred for the followers of Christ. Look at verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's talking about in his unregenerate state. I thought I needed to do things against Jesus of Nazareth. And he gives a list of the things that he actually did. He says in verse 10, which things I also did in Jerusalem. What did he do? And many of the saints did I shut up in prison. It's interesting that Christians are there called saints, holy ones. Saints in the Bible does not mean super Christians. It means ordinary Christians who have been made holy by the grace of God in Christ. I had imprisoned the saints in Jerusalem. What else did he say? He says in verse 10, And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Maybe he's thinking of Stephen. In the original Greek there, it uses the word uh, pebble, indicating that he was talking about 
these trials they would have and they would vote as to whether or not someone should be put to death and you, you would put a, a one color stone or pebble into the box if you thought yes and another if you thought no. And basically he says, I voted many times to put Christians to death. That's how much I hated the gospel and hated Christ. He goes on and says in verse 11, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, probably indicating here that he had approved the beatings of Christians in the synagogues. He says, and I compelled them to blaspheme. He had likely forced some professed Christians to deny the faith in Christ. And then he adds also in verse 11, and being exceedingly mad against them. And the word here for mad doesn't mean angry. It means crazy. I was filled with such an irrational, emotionally charged dislike for Christ and the faith that I persecuted. The word in Greek for to persecute also means to pursue. I pursued them and I persecuted them even into strange cities, even into foreign cities. So he says, I used to hate Christ and I hated his followers. It's interesting that all of his life after Paul was converted, this stayed on his conscience. He mentioned it, I've already read in Philippians 3.6 where he said, concerning zeal persecuting the church. In 1 Corinthians 15.9 he said, for I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet or fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It's always part of, of Paul's testimony that he would tell with shame. There's something in this about Paul's experience that is prototypical for all unregenerate men. And there's part of his testimony that is true for all who become believers. That is, perhaps we haven't done things so heinous as Paul did. But before coming to Christ, we were enemies of the gospel. Before coming to Christ, we could say what Paul says here in verse 9. I thought that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul will write in Romans 5.10 that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we were enemies of the gospel, that was when Christ died for us. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 44, Christ taught, love your enemies. And you know what Christ did on the cross? He practiced what he preached. On the cross, he loved his enemies. So much so that he laid down his life for them. The fourth heading... The fourth heading is in verses 12 through 18, where Paul rehearses once again his conversion on the Damascus Road. Three times in Acts. Again, Acts 9, Luke tells us about it in the third person. This is what happened to Paul. We already saw in Acts 22, Paul gave his first person account of it. And now he's going to give another account of it. Look at verse 12. Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? See, when he was persecuted the believers, he was persecuting Christ himself. But Christ said to him, the risen Christ said to him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What he's saying is, Paul, I'm drawing you to myself and you're fighting it. You're, it's like kicking against a brick wall. You kick against a brick wall, your toe gets hurt. And some of us can give testimony. Some might even be experiencing it today. Christ is drawing you to himself and you're kicking and fighting and 
your, your foot is hurt because you're kicking against the wall. I'm not going to be drawn to Christ. I'm not going to be drawn to Christ. Let's face it, who's going to win in the end? Three times, Paul, we hear of Paul's conversion. Some have said that the Apostle Paul was the kind of man, the kind of believer who never got over the fact that he was saved. He never got over the fact that he had been an enemy of the gospel, that he had killed Christians, voted for their death, but God in his mercy had saved him. I've met some Christians like that. You met Christians like that? They can't wait to tell you their testimony. Just yesterday, I saw a testimony posted to Twitter or X by a woman uh, who is now a homeschooling Christian mom and a member of one of our sister Reformed Baptist churches in another state. She wrote in response to a thread about restoration of broken marriages the following. She wrote, The first eight years of our marriage were hell. She said, I worked as a stripper. I did meth and nearly OD'd. I sat in jail while my husband was training as a U.S. Marine. Sin was destroying my life. But God, being rich in mercy, saved me. And then he saved my husband and restored our marriage. Those who have been forgiven much by Christ tend to love much. That's what happened with the sinful woman in Luke 7 who loved Christ much. And I think that's what Paul was like. And he still makes converts just like that all the time. He's doing it all the time. Paul goes on to say not only was he saved, but God then had a a useful purpose for him. And if you look at verses 17 and following, he, he talks about how Christ commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And so God had saved Paul in order to spend him in ministry. This brings us to the fifth part, which is Paul's offering a closing appeal to Agrippa and to the other hearers in verses 19 through 23. Notice in verse 19, he continues to speak specifically to Agrippa. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto this heavenly vision. I wasn't disobedient to God's calling me on the Damascus road. Starting in Damascus and in Jerusalem and other places, he says, then turning to the Gentiles, what did he preach to them in verse 20? That they should repent and turn to God and do works meet or fitting for repentance. Remember last Sunday afternoon we were talking about the order of salvation? There's a mention in verse 18 of being of preaching sanctification by faith. There's a mention here of repentance. There's also a mention here of, of teaching that once you're saved, that you need to produce works that are meet or fitting for repentance. As Paul will write in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In verse 21, he points out, For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Again, this is a reference to they, they had confused Trophimus being there, being his companion, and they had falsely accused him of bringing, bringing Trophimus into the temple. This is why they wanted to kill him. But what is, what is, it, what is it that he says? He says, I haven't done anything wrong. He says, I, I've only preached what is in the Bible. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue... Unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. And so there's a lot of interesting things in there. 
Paul mentions here the universal scope of his ministry, that he was sent to witness to both small and great. If you think about the book of Acts, you have Paul in Acts 16 uh, liberating a demon-possessed slave girl. And then you have him speaking before Roman governors. And he says, I have preached before small and great. And you know what? It's the same message for every person. doesn't matter what your standing in life is. It's the same gospel for every one of us. All of us were enemies of Christ until he died on the cross and loved his enemies. And then, again, he says he preached nothing but the Bible. And then what's the content of his preaching? Look at verse 23. That Christ should suffer and that, she be, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. His message was based in the scriptures and the content of it was the cross, the glorious resurrection, and that light was going to the people, to Jews like Paul, and to the Gentiles. Remember what we read this morning in Romans 1, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This is the mark of true Christian preaching. Preaching that does not point men to the cross and the resurrection of Christ is not preaching but only a glorified TED talk with a spiritual veneer. Six, and finally, if you'll be patient with me, let's look at this heading, which is the response to Paul's apologetic sermon. Notice in verse 24 that Festus, the Roman governor, he interrupts with a loud voice. He's heard enough. He says, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. He recognized that Paul was an educated man, a sophisticated man. But he says, religion has made you crazy. Isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it the funny thing? Remember back in verse 11, when Paul said when he was unsaved and he was persecuting Christians, he was exceedingly mad with them. And now he's sane and in his right mind, and the Roman governor thinks he's mad. To the Christian, the old life seems mad, and the new life in Christ seems sane. But unbelievers will often see it the other way around. I recently read uh, the biography of Jeff Thomas, autobiography of Jeff Thomas, who's going to be speaking at the Keach Conference. For 50 years, he was at Alfred Place Baptist Church in Wales, and he had a, lot of, a number of, of notable converts there. One was a man named Derek Thomas, who's now a well-known Presbyterian pastor and theologian. And he tells in the book about how Derek Thomas came to the faith. He came from a a non-Christian family or a nominally Christian family came to university and started attending um, the, the church there and uh, was converted. Yes, De Derek Thomas used to be a Baptist, then he became a Presbyterian. But anyways, he was converted there at, at that Baptist church, Alfred Place Baptist Church. But anyways, he tells a story and he says he went home on a break and he told his, his nominal Christian or unbelieving family, I've become a Christian. And they were so concerned about him, they said, you need to go to a psychiatrist. You need some help. They thought, they thought he'd gone crazy. Sad thing was, he was sane for the first time really in his life. They just thought he was crazy because he wasn't, he wasn't thinking and living according to the standards of the world any longer. Listen to Paul's response in verse 25. He says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And then he angles in, like back, he's, 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 he has a cripple in his, in his target here. He's for, he says, for the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for these things uh, this thing was not done in a corner. And then notice the personal pleading. There are these people there, but Paul just starts personal address, personal pleading with Agrippa. 
You ever been to one of those services where you felt like the preacher is preaching to me? Agrippa had no doubt about it. <laughs> King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? Do you believe what the prophets said about Christ? Then he says, I know, I know you believe, I know you understand and believe in the prophets. He's pleading with him, and then Agrippa gives again what has to be one of the saddest responses that we read about in the scriptures, very much like the rich young ruler who when Christ said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says he went away sad because he had much wealth. Here, Agrippa says, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa declares himself to be an almost persuaded hearer of the gospel but as we all know there is no such thing as a halfway Christian with Christ it is all or nothing Paul's response is astounding he says in verse 29 I would to God that not only thou not only you Agrippa but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. Who in their right minds would have wanted to trade places with Paul? He's a prisoner. His life is in jeopardy. He's being sent to Rome. And he says, I, oh, I feel so sorry for y'all. I feel so sorry for y'all free people. I wish you could all be in my shoes. I wish you could know the peace that I have in Christ except for these chains. Ben, I said earlier, I think, I think you might have been attending to one of the kids. I said, I said in verse 3, I think this is what every preacher should say at the beginning of a sermon. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. I think verse 20, 29 is what we should say at the end. Oh, I wish you were, I wish you were in my shoes. Except for my infirmities, my external infirmities and weaknesses and sinfulness that I still have now because of remaining corruptions. But oh, I wish you, I wish you could be there as somebody who believes in Christ, has faith in Christ. That's the irony. Spiritually speaking, in this sitting situation, the prisoner was free and the guards were imprisoned, spiritually speaking. The, the seventh and last part, I'm not even going to read it, you can look at verses 30 through 32. Basically, after Paul leaves, uh, Festus and Agrippa say, this man's done nothing wrong. He could have gone free had he not appealed to Caesar. Of course, they didn't know about those who were waiting in Jerusalem to take his life. Well, friends, we'll work through the passage. Thank you for your patience. There are messages in this chapter for Christ's church today, for her people, for her officers. We can follow the model of the Apostle Paul. Let us never get over the fact that we have been saved. Let us never forget that Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. Let us preach Christ crucified and risen from the scriptures to all men, small and great. Let us preach that message, whether it be accepted, rejected, or ignored. I might add that there may be some here today who are still what might be called almost persuaded hearers. Let us not perpetuate the error of Agrippa, but let us, by God's grace, be sanctified by faith, repent of our sin, and turn to Christ, producing works, meet, or fitting for repentance. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for uh, thy word, for this inspired record 
of the things that happened in Paul's life and for also the spiritual exhortations that are here relating beyond the historical record to what is going on in our lives right now and how the gospel is going forth, how it's being received or not received. And help us to be a faithful church in these times and to hold forth Christ. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.